Thank you, Tim. I think uh, whether I am a founder of wisdom remains very much to be seen, of course. Um, but yeah, we shall see. Uh, let us pray. So, Lord, take my lips and speak your word through them. Take our minds and think your thoughts through them. And take our hearts, making them a place for your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, we, I was wondering where Andrea was going because we were having a sort of impromptu Bible study uh, from some of the very passages that I wanted to take with you. Uh, I thought she would uh, comprehensively preempt me. Um, I don't think she has done, but let's see. Uh, well, uh, I'm old-fashioned enough, of course, to have a, a paper Bible you know, with me. Uh, I know this is not the fashion. Uh, but uh, in whatever form you have the Bible, do get it out. I have arranged for the text to be put up on the screens, uh, so there's no escaping the text. Uh, it is very important for us to have Bibles and to have open Bibles uh, when we engage in worship and in thinking about God's uh, purpose for us. And I thought, given the uh, theme of this conference, uh, that the best passage to take with you uh, today and tomorrow uh, is uh, Matthew 5, uh, Andrea has already referred to bits of it, uh, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or if you're reading St. Luke's Gospel, the Sermon on the Plain, depends on your point of view. I mean, if you stand on the Mount uh, with the one who's preaching, then it's the Sermon on the Mount. If you're the crowd standing on the plain, then, of course, it's the Sermon on the Plain. There is no real contradiction between the two. It's the same event being reported uh, by both evangelists. The context uh, in both Matthew and Luke is that uh, Jesus has begun his work. The public ministry has begun. He has begun to teach as he goes around uh, that vast area of Galilee, uh, and of Syria, uh, and he has begun to heal, his ministry of healing as well. And in Matthew's Gospel in particular, uh, Matthew has a habit of stating the general first and then coming to the particular. So in chapter 4 he says Jesus began his teaching and his healing, and then he goes into the detail. What actually was he teaching? And so the Sermon on the Mount uh, is an example of what Jesus was teaching. And then immediately after that, there is an account uh, of his healing ministry and uh, various uh, instances of that. So chapter 5, this morning we will do, hopefully, the first 20 verses. Uh, Jesus uh, seeing the press of the crowd. Uh, that had come because they had heard about the healing, goes up onto a mountain. Now, where the mountain is, uh, is disputed, but uh, let us imagine that it is that slope uh, west of Tabra. I don't know if people have been to the Holy Land, but if you have, it's a very moving sight, actually. I uh, led a party of pilgrims there, and um, I was walking around, and I saw these two pretty... Art-bitten businessmen who were in the party uh, with tears in their eyes. 
And I said, what's the matter? And they said, nothing, Bishop. They said, it's just the place has got to us. Uh, so perhaps uh, west of Tanga is, is the place, but wherever it is, it doesn't matter. Uh, of course, he had to be uh, at a vantage point if people were going to listen to him. So standing on a higher place, uh, talking to people who were in a lower place, uh, makes sense. The immediate audience you will see uh, is the disciples, his own followers. Uh, they are the, um, the people for whom the sermon is directed in the first place, but the crowds are not far away. The crowds are there listening, and it is a matter of fine judgment very often um, whether parts of the sermon are addressed to the disciples or to the wider audience uh, that is present there. So we have, first of all, of course, you are familiar with these, the Beatitudes. Quite often in the uh, non-Christian world, when people speak of the Sermon on the Mount, they lean the Beatitudes, actually. Um, I was once leading a, a debate on some subject in in the House of Lords, I had drawn, my, in the, drawn it on the ballot. And the, the clerk said to me, Bishop, as soon as you've spoken, one of our leading atheists is going to get up and more or less rubbish what you've said. <laughs> so, fair enough, that's, that's part of debating, to have the freedom to do that on all sides. Uh, and sure enough, he did this. And then, at the end, the Lord gave him into my hands because he said, well, of course, when I want to, well, he does, you know, the Lord does give people into my hands. Uh, he said, uh, at the end of the speech, he said, well, of course, when I have to make decisions about what is right and wrong, I go to the Sermon on the Mount. So in my winding up speech, I said, why does the Sermon on the Mount? Why not everything else that Jesus said? And uh, that's, of course, a question uh, to ask people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke, of course, just has, blessed are the poor. Or blessed are you poor. Uh, Matthew brings out the inner meaning of what Jesus is saying. Uh, this word in the Older Testament uh, nearly always means those who are poor for the sake of God. Uh, that is the, the inner meaning, those who have been made poor, those who have been rejected, ejected, uh, refused, uh, because of their commitment to God. And of course, during the next um, few hours, we will hear of many such people who've been made poor, who've uh, lost their professional status or their jobs or their families uh, because of their commitment uh, to God's will and their obedience um, to God. But I think there is another meaning here of those who are poor in spirit, uh, that is to say, those who feel their need for God, those who know that they're not sufficient in themselves, uh, that they need God who alone uh, can make them able to resist the temptations of the world and to grow in the spiritual life. I think this is very important uh, for our theme. If we talk about purity, 
uh, it is right for us to do so, of course, the Bible does, as we should see. Uh, but we are not talking about any kind of self-righteous, self-made purity. Uh, because if we do, we will be misled, um, and uh, then the fall uh, will be all that much greater. Those who are poor in spirit, who know their need of God, who know that they want the kingdom and the king uh, to come into their lives. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the only beatitude, by the way, this and the uh, and 11, uh, 10 and 11, which are in the present tense, at least in Greek and in English. In the Aramaic that Jesus spoke, rather like Arabic and also, of course, Maltese, uh, the imperfect stands both for the present and the future. So we don't know whether this is simply an accident that one is translated present and another uh, future. But this is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that we all pray, we just pray, your kingdom come. But first of all, into our lives and into our hearts, uh, when we express our need for the kingdom and the king to come. The kingdom of God, said Jesus, is within you, or will be within you, um, or among you, indeed. But one thing about kingdom and king in the New Testament is Jesus preaches the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he is himself the kingdom. His presence is itself the presence of the kingdom. And that is what those who are poor in spirit uh, are wanting. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is mourning for our own corruption, our own sinfulness. When we point out the sin of the world, we recognize that sin in ourselves, first of all. And it is only by grace, through faith, that we have been delivered from that. We should, we should never forget that. Um, that uh, the natural state of the human person is one that should cause us to mourn, indeed, uh, for ourselves and for the world around us, as I think Andrea was just doing. Uh, she was mourning at the state of the world, and much that you will hear, justifiably, is that kind of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And of course, the great comforter is the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, who comes to us uh, to comfort us and to give us hope, uh, to encourage us, to prod us into action. I mean, uh, paraclete, as you know, means all of those things. Blessed are the meek, or perhaps we should say humble these days, because the word meek has changed its meaning in, in the English language. Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the land. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, people did believe in virtue. They believed in uh, virtues like wisdom, courage, um, um, and uh, so on. Uh, but humility uh, was not a virtue in the ancient world, generally speaking. 
There is a reference to humility or to meekness in the Older Testament. Moses was a meek man, for instance, we are told. And indeed, it says explicitly in Psalm 37 that the meek will inherit the land. By that, of course, meaning the promised land uh, in, the, in the Older Testament. Jesus is the prime example of this kind of humility. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He emptied himself, took the form of a slave. It's that kind of humility that the Christian faith has made a virtue. It's widely recognized now that it is a virtue uh, in the world. Uh, but it is so because Christians have made it so. Uh, and as Christian faith retreats, uh, so people speak of pride. You know, uh, gay pride, this pride, that pride. But for the Christian faith, pride is the first sin. It is the cardinal sin. A false estimate of ourselves. So blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the land. That is to say, our ministry of uh, humility uh, and humility with God's word is what will change the nation. We've just been saying the atmosphere is changing, but it is God's word using us uh, as a means that will change the atmosphere. Not uh, wishful thinking, not even activism, uh, but the faithful obedience and proclamation of the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know that I've been saying blessed. Some of the new translations, I don't know which one I've got behind me, but say happy are those. Well, I, yes, happiness is a sort of horizontal thing. You know, it's, it's not about the blessedness that comes from above, because it is, of course, God who is truly blessed. So any blessing that we have is because of God's blessedness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, this can mean two things. This can mean literally those who are deprived because they are seeking God's righteousness. Yes, so they give up what they might otherwise have had because they are seeking the truth and the justice and the integrity uh, that only God can bring. Or it can mean these are people who are hungering for God's righteousness to be established in their society, in their lives, in their families, in their nation. And they are told that in the end, this righteousness will prevail because God is almighty. He is working his purposes out. Whatever the scene may look like, and I'm sure in the next few hours you will um, be tempted towards depression. <laughs> but, but I mean, I know I am, so... Um, but those who hunger for God's rightness, for God's justice, 
will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, first of all, we can be merciful only because we have obtained mercy. Uh, it is in gratitude for the mercy that we have obtained that we can be merciful towards others. Uh, and just to prevent any misunderstanding, uh, this uh, mercy that we may have towards other people is not simply to endorse whatever it is they're doing, uh, but to make them aware of God's love for them, God's purpose for them, uh, and how God wants them to live. Without that, we are not really being merciful. We are just tucking the issue. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Well, we are not pure in heart, naturally speaking, are we? The scripture tells us again and again that we are not. Uh, it is the broken spirit and the contrite heart that proves acceptable to God. Psalm 51. So how do we become pure in heart? And this theme is uh, repeated in the sermon again and again. We become acceptable to God because of what Jesus has done for us, as we have just sung in that last hymn. It is uh, the purity of Christ with which we are clothed that makes us acceptable to God. It is not our purity. It is not our righteousness. This is basic gospel. And if we don't uh, understand this, uh, we will understand nothing of Christian life and witness and ministry. So first of all, this is the purity of Christ. He who knew no sin, he made to be a sin offering. I think that is how 2 Corinthians 5, 21 should be translated. He made a sin offering so that we may become the righteousness and purity of God. So what is at first Christ, gradually through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, becomes ours. That is a miracle, isn't it? What is his, ever so gradually, uh, so many setbacks, so many times uh, of barrenness, but nevertheless really it becomes ours. The pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is the great human desire to see God. And Jesus said to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So purity in heart leads us to see who Jesus really is, his significance, uh, his meaning, um, the, the destiny uh, to which he leads us. Blessed are the peacemakers. It doesn't say peaceable folk. It doesn't say just those who are pacifists or whatever. I don't want to get into that debate at the moment. But it says those who actively make peace to remove oppression, to fight injustice, 
to create the conditions for true peace, freedom. The peacemakers, those who are active in the cause of making of peace, for they shall be called sons of God. Um, the Bible is full of God's fatherhood uh, everywhere. It's everywhere in the Bible. He is father because he's creator. He is father of Israel. He is father of the promised Messiah. He is our father by adoption and grace. Um, and um, I had a, a discussion with some Muslim leaders about this matter, about the fatherhood of God in the Bible, because they often object to Jesus being the Son of God. And I said, well, okay, you will think about that. But you have to understand that our Bible talks about God's fatherhood everywhere, and in many different senses. We cannot evade God's fatherhood uh, in any way if we read the Bible seriously. So the peacemakers, those who are at peace with God, then become those who struggle to make peace with others. You see. Peace with God comes first. Peace in our lives, I mean peace within ourselves, how important that is, because uh, there are so many struggles going on inside the human personality. And then peace uh, with those around us, our families, our communities, our nation, the world. And then uh, these um, last two um, Beatitudes, which perhaps are one, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted. We are living in an age where there is uh, more persecution of Christians than there has ever been before. Ever been before. In great persecution of Christians throughout the ages, in the Roman Empire and in the Persian Empire, um, and throughout the ages. But we are living in a time of persecution, and the kind of persecution that we are experiencing here in this country is just a tiny part of what is happening to the church worldwide. So that prevents us from dramatizing, over-dramatizing our persecution. Uh, we are not uh, being cast into prison for long periods of time. Uh, we are not uh, being uh, uh, physically beaten up in most cases, uh, though that sometimes happens. Uh, we are not losing our lives. But ha having said that, people are experiencing real persecution here. If you lose your job, if you lose your professional accreditation, um, if you have no means of livelihood left, if your freedom is curtailed, I mean, all those are real examples of persecution. And in my experience, discrimination and exclusion uh, leads to persecution. That has happened in other parts of the world and it is happening uh, here today. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for this also happened to the prophets who were before you. So the prophetical office of the church 
leads to rejection by the world. And this is bound to be the case if the church is actually being prophetic. That doesn't mean shouting uh, and you know, shooting off uh, your mouth whenever an opportunity presents itself, but actually to be quite clear about what is God's purpose for humanity uh, when we need uh, to speak the word. Uh, two final points, and then I'll start for this morning. Uh, you are the salt of the earth. Salt works invisibly. Some of us are called to public ministry. Um, sometimes I ask God why. Uh, for myself, I mean. Um, but there are many people who are not called to public ministry, but who are actively changing things quietly. And I don't think we should uh, undervalue them in any way. Mothers in homes, Andrea was talking about that. Uh, fathers uh, with their children. Uh, leaders in communities, um, teachers indeed who are courageously holding on to the truth in our schools. There are so many examples, doctors and nurses in hospitals. Um, we have an example uh, and when we hear of these examples or experience them, we should be able to, to appreciate them. The salt of the earth. Now salt of course, provides taste, um, and it is interesting, wherever the Christian faith has grown, uh, the arts and literature and architecture have flourished. What would Europe be without the history of the Christian faith in its settings? Because that is the word that is used, the taste that salt provides. It is also a nutrient. And my wife and I have a dispute about the extent to which salt is a nutrient. <laughs> I believe very strongly that it is, she is more reserved. <laughs> but it is, it is a nutrient. What would food be like without any salt at all? But most of all, it is a preservative. And in the ancient world, very much so, before we had refrigerators and so on, perhaps we should return to this situation now with extinction rebellion and so on. <laughs> But the point about being salt is that we are the preservative meant for the common grace that sustains the world. This is not just about life in the church. This is the common grace of God that allows the structure of society to be life-giving and not life-denying. Any chemists here? Oh, there's one chemist there. Well, sodium chloride, sir, cannot lose its taste, can it? It cannot, I'm told by chemists. So, so how is it that uh, Jesus is talking about salt losing its taste? Well, one way in which sodium chloride can lose its taste is through contamination, through the influence of what is not appropriate affecting adulteration, contamination, adulteration, and infiltration. 
That is how the salt of the Dead Sea, for instance, loses its taste because it is contaminated with other chemicals. And then, uh, did I say finally before? <laughs> well, this is second finally. Preachers are allowed to. Um, you are the light of the world. So just as salt works invisibly, light works visibly. What would be the use of light if it wasn't visible? So the ministry of Christian concern is a ministry of bringing the light of the gospel to the world. A visible ministry, highly visible, and therefore highly exposed, of course, to every kind of attack, to every kind of danger. And there are many in this room uh, who have ministries like that. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. And men do not light a lamp and put it under a basin or a basket or a bushel. It's actually the word that is used, modios, is something that was used to gather up grain. But it was sometimes used deliberately to hide the light. So there are people in the church, I have to say, I'm sorry to say, who know there is the light, but still prefer to hide it. A very leading churchman has said to me this morning, uh, thank you for saying something about something or other. Um, I cannot say anything one way or another about this. But what kind of statement is that? <laughs> uh, not one way or the other. That is not being light. So put it on the stand and it gives light to all in the house. That is what uh, Jesus is saying. And we have a challenge, I've said this before, you may have heard me say this before, that uh, the, the way in which the church, certainly the Church of England has been in this country, has been uh, on the model of salt, working invisibly in society, uh, hatching, matching, dispatching, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> And that's not without value. There are tremendous opportunities in hatching, matching, dispatching. But the question is whether that is now not appropriate or not so appropriate anymore, whether we need now to shift to the light metaphor, where the gospel is clearly shown with its demands and its comforts, with its opportunities and its challenges. So shine in this world that people may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. May it be so. Amen.